Ecclesiastes 9. I was considering preaching uh, a message this morning about faith and, and fear, just as I was watching how, how people were responding this past week. And then I read the next passage in Ecclesiastes and was reminded, never doubt God's providence. God always knows exactly what His people need, and He has conveniently placed a text in front of us that, that meets our needs this, this morning. And as I said, what a better book to be in than Ecclesiastes when the curse is so evident around us. And what better message from that book than God reminding us that He is in control of it all, including, including death, and then teaching us how to live in, in light of that, that's the message of Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 10. God gives us wisdom on the good life in real life. That's how I've titled it, the good life in, in real life. Now, I've been telling you, Ecclesiastes is not some pessimistic book written by a backslidden cynic. It's actually a wisdom book that gives us a realistic view of the, of the curse. And as one preacher put it, Solomon has a unique way of teaching his wisdom, doesn't he? It's like a, a Bear grill show. Solomon has been dragging us through the harsh landscape outside of the garden, but never too far away from the rescue. You know that Bear Grylls is going to get us to the rescue by the end of the, of the show. And that's exactly where Solomon ends, Ecclesiastes. The reason Solomon forces us to look so hard at the barren landscape outside of the garden is, is so we can gain survival skills, the survival skills of, of wisdom. The journey is never unguided, and sometimes it's a little more reality than is comfortable, but that's necessary. Otherwise, we wouldn't look and we wouldn't learn. We would stick our head in the sand like a lot of people do in life. And so books like Job are in the Bible to show us that things don't always work out the way that we think. Books like Ecclesiastes to force us to look at the curse and give us wisdom to know how to do Are They're in the Bible for that, for that reason. But Solomon also knows where, where the gold deposits are located at. Solomon says while the curse is all around us, there, and there are things that are crooked that can't be made straight. God has not left us without blessing, without enjoyment. He's buried gold in the dust. You come from the dust. Part of the curse is you work in the dust and you return to the dust. But in that dust, God has, has buried some gold deposits. And Ecclesiastes 9 contains one of those treasure troves of the book. Now Solomon has to, to pry open the oyster of the fall to get to it, but this text contains a flawless pearl at the, at the end. I hope you picked up on it. In verses 7 through 10, whenever you were, when you were listening. The passage reminds us what we should expect living under the curse and then shows us the good that we can pursue in Christ. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is like that. Solomon has been explaining why things happen, like coronavirus, and why human beings respond to, to fear and the way that they, they, they gain the system, even in Wall Street sell-offs. But, but it also gives believers wisdom in how to respond to it. So when you look 
to this world for, for meaning or security, all you're going to find is an empty pantry. But if you listen to God, He'll show you where the provisions are hidden. And, and even the bag of cookies, which is in our passage. So after completing his, his wise lesson of chapter 8 on authority in the first half and then wisdom's limitations in the second half of chapter 8, Solomon brings us back to the one place where we can find stability, God's sovereignty. And then he fuels, he uses that to fuel our responsibility. God is absolutely and totally sovereign over all things. I wonder how many pulpits are saying that this morning. Hopefully all of them, because it's true. All people, all time, even death, the Bible says, is in the hand of God. And that shouldn't lead us to be lifeless or passive. Solomon's going to show us in this passage, it drives us to trust God and then pursue life with, with all of our hearts, even in scary times. Solomon shows us exactly what to pursue at the end of, of our verses. In fact, he commands it. Solomon reminds us, after sovereignty in verse 1, in verses 2 through 10, he reminds us that death is a reality that makes life eagerly lived. It sounds like a, a contradiction. Death is a reality that makes life eagerly lived. But that's exactly what Solomon's going to say. We know that death is coming, and rather than terrifying us, Solomon says that it motivates us to live. And we show that we trust God as we live our lives by enjoying the good gifts, even though the curse is all around us, like eating and drinking and your marriage and working hard and those types of, of things. That's how you express faith. How do you express faith when, when all of the world is in turmoil and in the curse? You, you, you get up and you go to work, you, you eat your dinner, you enjoy your family, you come to church, you, you do those things that God has given as blessings. That's how you express faith in Him. A simple outline of, of chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, is God's in control and, and we're not in verse 1. We can't even know what's coming. Death is sure and can be expected in verses 2 through 6. And yet life is still full of gifts to be enjoyed and believers are commanded to enjoy them in verses 7 and 10. And as you do, you show a trust in God. Or as we will outline it simply, three guidelines to the good life in real life. Or living well in a lame world. <laughs> Solomon's three guidelines are rest in God's sovereignty in verse 1 recognize death's surety in verses 2 through 6, and then rejoice in life satisfactions in verses 7 through 10. Let's look at the first one where Solomon calls us to rest in God's sovereignty. The first guideline to the good life in real life is to rest. Where do you rest? You rest in the hand of God. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Solomon says, for I've taken all this to heart and, and examined it. Some of your translations may say explain. And examined it, 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 that righteous men and wise men and their deeds are in the hand of God. And man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. 
Solomon begins by saying, I've taken all this into my heart. I've examined it, meaning the lessons of chapter 7 and, and chapter 8. And examine is a better rendering of the, of the Hebrew word than explain. It, it means to scrutinize. He, he scrutinized it all. Wisdom and folly, authority and wisdom's limitations that he just got done teaching us about. And as he does, he concludes that both righteous and wise men and all their deeds are in the hand of God. This is more ju- than just a brain calculation. It's something that he's pondered with all of his heart. He's taken it into his heart, Solomon says. And, and as he does that, he draws a conclusion. Dr. Bill Barrick said it means a, a total consciousness, not just intellectual reason. It's all of his experience, uh, uh, insight in walking, that, that brings him to the conclusion that God is sovereign, even over the deeds of men. This verse 1 is a bridge. It's a summary of chapter 7 and 8, and it's a bridge to what he's going to say next in, in chapter 9. Solomon says, while wisdom has its limits, and not even a wise man can know what's coming, that's what he says at the end of chapter 8, the comfort is God's in control of what happens to us. And that should bring our hearts to ease. The hand of God here is, is what's called a an anthropomorphism, meaning it's, a, it's applying a human attribute to the Lord. Now, does, God have, does God have hands? Well, the Lord Jesus does, but God's a spirit. So when it's talking about this, it's the hand of God. It's, it's, a, it's representing something. What's it representing? It's, it's all through the, all through the, old, the old Testament. Isaiah 66, 2 says that the... For my hand has made all of these things, and for all of these things they, they came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is, who is humble and, a, and a, a, contrite, a, cron, a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my, my word. Look at Psalm 8, verse 3. For when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers... It's another one. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. The idea is even carried over into the, into the New Testament. When Stephen was preaching, when he was being stoned, it, it was the last thing that, that he appealed to and he mentioned before he, he called the, the ones who were stoning him stiff-necked and uncircumcised at, at heart. He, he referenced this truth. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and my, uh, of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? We know Genesis 3 says God spoke and the world came into existence. But here it's representing. What's it representing? It's His power. It's it's His ability to do these things. It's God carrying these things out. Well, here Solomon says that the deeds of men are, are in the hand of God. And being in the hand of God means being under His power or, or under His control. Solomon says that the deeds of men are in the, the hand of God. They make choices, but each and every one of them happen on His palm. He's got the whole world in His hand, as we sing. There's not a lot cast, a choice made, or a deed done that happens outside of his grip. That's not a new theme for Solomon. 
It's the same foundation block that, uh, for wisdom that he gave us back in chapter 3. Probably one of your favorite passages in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3. He also concludes the same place in Ecclesiastes 3. Enjoy God's good gifts because he has a good grip on, on time. He, he, gave us, he gave us six beliefs about God's grip of time that will help you live in a Genesis 3 world in chapter 3. He says it's noticeably absolute, it's eternally complete, it's purposely inexplicable, it's delightfully good. God's sovereignty is worshipfully durable, it's unquestionably immutable. It's in verse 15 of chapter 3. He told us there that God's good grip of time means that no matter what you face, birth or death, peace or war, planting or harvesting, quarantines or viruses, no matter what calamity comes, as a result of the fall, God is still in control of it. And the judge of the earth always does right. And Solomon says, isn't it that comforting? And it is. Solomon says the same thing here. But this is chapter 9, not chapter 3. He says that in chapter 3, early on in the book, now we, we have we have trekked a long way through the curse. And Solomon says here, now after he's been on his journey for a while and examining the deeds of of men and the limitations, and Solomon's examined injustice and crooked politicians and evil oppression and abuse of authority and, and all those things. He says all men, their deeds, are in God's hand. There's not an atom in the universe that's not operating under Christ's supremacy and not a disease floating about that he's not supervising. You see, Solomon understands if if you're going to live in a world where there are crooked things with the effects of the curse, the greatest overarching tool that you need is trust in God's good grip. It will allow you to rest in all the areas of the curse that we see so clearly, even pandemics. It's the steadying, the steadying doctrine for all believers living in a fallen world. And Solomon says the best answer to our limitations of wisdom in chapter 8 is remembering that we can trust Him. And then he says, besides, you don't know yourself what you're going to do. You can't know how many things are going to unfold. Look at verse 1 again. For I have taken all this into my heart and examined the righteous man and the wise man. Their deeds are in the hand of the Lord. But now he goes from God's hand back to man. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Man does not know anything that awaits him. That's the idea of of that verse. Solomon's point is you don't know what awaits you as human beings. And we don't exercise control over all of our circumstances. Not only are you not in control, but you don't even know what's coming. (laughs) Who planned this a month ago? I tell you, I didn't. Solomon mentions the extremes of emotions here. Notice he says he does not know whether it's love or hatred, meaning you don't know uh, love or hatred or anything in between. It's like what Paul does when he says, I know how to, uh, to to be... in a situation of where I'm abounding and I know how to be abased, and then everything in between. 
He could be referencing the Old Testament concept of, of acceptance or rejection. You know, when God says, like Jacob, I, I accepted, and Esau, I rejected. It could be what he's mentioning here. But regardless, the point is, extremes and everything in between, and you don't know what's coming tomorrow, much less the end of this day. We're limited in knowledge. We're limited in ability. And there's no formula to avoid either in a, in a cursed world. As I said, he just got done teaching that. Look at verse 16 of Ecclesiastes 8. It's one verse up. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which was done, un, uh, done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, he, he's examining, even giving up sleep. I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though a wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And then he says all of the the deeds, all of those deeds of, of man are in God's hands. And then he echoes the same thing. Man can't even know the extremes or anything in between. Man doesn't know, but God does. So rest there. Not in your intellect or, or your ability. That's what David did in 2 Samuel 24, 14, whenever he was facing God's judgment for numbering Israel. Do you remember that David was given an option for a judgment? 2 Samuel 24, 14. Then David said to Gad, I think I have this up here. Maybe. Yeah. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. You see the contrast there? He was given a choice. Man's hand or God's hand? Which do you prefer? God's hand and not knowing? (laughs) A sovereign God and, and not knowing? Or man's hand, thinking that you know? Well, a wise man chooses God's hand. Because God knows what you need, God gives us what we need, and He'll take us through each trial. And that includes through the greatest trial or mystery of all, which is death. And so Solomon gives us the second guideline to the good life in real life. It's to recognize death's surety. Look if you would at verse 2. It's the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man, so is the sinner. As the swearer, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is evil. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and there is one fate for all men. Solomon says death is unavoidable. It's the same for all. And that's a guideline, knowing that, recognizing that, that it's surely coming, is a guideline to the good life in, in real life. He says there's, there's one event, not fate. We don't believe in fate. The Hebrew word means event. One event that everyone faces. And then Solomon lists five opposites here that, and says they all end up in the same place, six feet under. That's what he says. Truly the righteous and clearly the wicked. They die. 
The one who follows God's precepts and is clean, and the one who's unclean, they die. The one who keeps the sacrifices and the one who doesn't, they both die. The good person and the sinner, the one who swears and the one who's afraid to swear, they all die. This really reads like the, the genealogy in Genesis 5. So all the days of Adam were 930 years and he died. And so all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And you go on and he died and he died and he died and he died. In the end of the chapter, he repeats the same refrain. And Solomon says, nothing has changed since Genesis 5. Your character will not allow you to cheat death and your religious practices will not help you escape it either. It's an evil that awaits everyone after Genesis 3, meaning it's not a pleasant reality. Look at verse 3 again. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that there is one event coming for, for all men. Solomon says it's an evil. Christians don't look at death and say, hey, that's wonderful. I mean, nobody does that. That's not what Paul means when he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. He means death ushers him into his reward, into his, into his gain. But, but Paul wasn't looking forward to dying any more than, than, than you and I are going through the, the chilly waters of the Jordan, as they say. My friend Joel James says death is like a cobra that Christ has defanged. It, it can't bite you anymore, but you still don't want to put it on your lap and cuddle it and play with it. Solomon says death is an evil, and and then he tells us where it comes from. It's under the sun. Notice he says this is an evil that's done under the sun. So it's, it's life on the earth after Genesis 3, after the fall. And then he tells us where it comes from. Look at the rest of verse 3. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their whole lives. The evil of death comes because you're evil and I'm evil. Under the sun, the curse is operating. And that comes because mankind is evil. That's not the way God created mankind. And they're insane. How's that for your self-esteem? Here's proof that mental illness is in the Bible. You're insane without Christ in the Scriptures. You're depraved. You're depravity. Death, the one fate that comes to all because the fallen mind is mentally ill, Paul says. You say, I came to church to hear this? I mean, I could have stayed home and watched CNN and the coronavirus coverage. Just hang in there. Solomon's going somewhere. Solomon's goal is to remind us of this so that we'll face it as a believer. Believers die like everyone else, but they face it differently. They process it differently. They think about it differently. You say, how? Well, there are three ways. Three ways that you face it differently. You use it to glorify God. You don't fear it. And you're motivated to live because of it. That's what Solomon's going to end with. You're motivated to live because of it. Paul said that death is an opportunity to glorify God. Now, I'm not in any hurry to get there. I want to live as long as I can to preach the gospel to people and to live for Jesus Christ. But death, my death, your death, whenever it comes, is an opportunity to glorify God. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. 
Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul said, my earnest hope is that if I depart, I will glorify Christ in my death. That's what he's thinking about, about dying. How will you die? Will the coronavirus get you or cancer? I don't know. Verse 1 says you don't know either, which is why you must rest in God's hand. But Paul says whatever way you die, think of this, it's one last chance to bring God glory before you leave the earth and you face Him. It doesn't mean that you're foolish and throw caution to the wind. You don't go lick the doorknob at the infectious disease ward in the hospital. Carelessness violates other commands and principles like stewardship, and your body is a temple. Matt St. Clair sent this to me this past week. While parents were out buying toilet paper, this is what their little girl was doing. Solomon is not saying do the adult version of that. Can you recover from that image? Your parents are triggered right now. Solomon is not saying do the adult version of that. He's he's saying death is is not a conqueror to a Christian. It's a servant. It ushers you to your Savior. It doesn't separate you from Him. It brings you face to face with Him. And that changes everything. It used to separate you from God. And now it brings you into God's presence. You see the difference for a believer? You ever thought about death that way? One last chance to glorify God before you see Him. You see, unbelievers avoid death, and and surely they don't see it as a chance to honor God. But God says that's not so for the Christian. He also says that you shouldn't fear it. You shouldn't fear it. We're told how to view death as a believer in the Bible. We don't sorrow over it, and... Uh, Sorry, we sorrow over it, I should say. We do sorrow. But we don't fear it because Jesus has defeated it, meaning it it could no longer be conquered. Jesus went in the grave, and he didn't stay there, did he? He came out of the grave. He conquered the grave. Think of it this way about facing death. Before Christ's death, it's like, like you're in an army and you, you line up in front of, a, front of an enemy. And there's this moment before you see them in the movies. They're all lined up here and they're all lined up over there. And there's a lot of angst and anxiety. Before the first volley is fired, they're, they're standing there facing each other. You're on one side and death is on the other. You don't know how the battle is going to turn out. You don't know whether you're going to be wounded or killed. You don't know whether your battle, your army's going to win or the other. There's a lot of anxiety that would be in your heart if you're, if you're in one of those, those armies. But how does that same army respond in front of an en- enemy, lined up in formation for the enemy to sign surrender papers. It's a different response in the heart, isn't there? There's no fear at all. Why? Because the other army's already defeated. They're no longer a threat. And the Bible says that's the way a Christian faces death. 
Death is an enemy, but it's already succumbed to Christ. The battle's already over. It's no longer a threat, but a tool in his hand. In fact, it obeys Christ's command. So what happens if a virus kills you? You get to be with Jesus and glorify Him in that kind of death. What happens if it doesn't kill you? What happens if you don't even get it? You're going to die of something else and you get to glorify God in your cancer or your heart attack or whatever it is. I mean, that's the practical reality that the Bible places in front of us. That's stabilizing. And there's hope in that. Look, if you would, at verse uh, verse 4, realizing that motivates you not to waste your life. It motivates you to live. Look at verse 4. For whoever is joined with all the living, meaning you're still alive, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. I heard some of you chuckle whenever we read that. It's one of my favorite parts of Ecclesiastes. It's a proverb that simply means life is better than death. And he explains why as well. There's, there's hope for the living. That's not too confusing. Why does Solomon say that when he just got done telling us death is coming for, for all? Well, he's not going back on anything he just said. He, he's telling us what to do with the life that we have before we die. If you're still alive and you still have life, this is what you do. It's better to be alive. Why? Because you have hope. You can do something with your life. That's what he's saying. Solomon is limiting his gaze to life. He, he says, don't fall to the temptation. As you look at the curse and you realize that you have a certain amount of time and death is standing somewhere out there and you don't even know when it's going to come, he's saying, don't fall to the temptation that since death is coming, you shouldn't live. What's the use? I'm going to die anyway. That's what he's saying. It's an unbiblical approach to the curse. Solomon is saying, don't fall to Eeyore theology. I don't know, what's the use? I'm just going to die of something anyway, right? Don't think that way. It's a temptation, particularly later in life, isn't it? When you're young, you need to be reminded you can die, okay? (laughs) What you're doing can bring your death. Solomon says to the young, it's better to be old and alive than young and dead. You need to listen to Solomon. But when you're older, you comprehend the reality of death a little too much and you need to be reminded to live. I'm 70, and so I've got 15 years or so left and I don't have the same energy that I once did. Solomon says a live dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) A dog was was the scroungiest scavenger in the Middle East. Not an honorable animal which is why he picks it. And yet he is better off than the king of the jungle who's dead. At least you have strength to serve Jesus. I'm 17 and I've got my whole life in front of me and I feel like a lion who looks invincible. Solomon says a live dog is better than a dead lion. And then he explains why being alive is preferable. Look if you would at verse 5. Notice it starts with four, explanation. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have anything, uh, nor, nor have they any reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, 
the two things that they couldn't know in verse 1 that only God knows, their love and their hate and their zeal have already perished. And they will no longer have a share in all of it, in all that is done under the sun. Life ends. Now we know that there's life after death. Solomon's already taught us about that. He's just talking about under the sun, the time that you have on the earth. He says it's because you know death is coming that you don't waste it. Don't waste the life that you have. Isn't that Satan's goal? Isn't that one of the goals? To tell people don't worry about it? Don't worry about trusting Jesus. You can do that tomorrow. Don't worry about investing in your family. You you can do that tomorrow. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. But the Bible says you don't know whether tomorrow is going to come. So live for Christ today. Because Solomon says when you die, it's over. It's fixed. So you know death is coming. Live now knowing that you, you will die. So, okay, I get that. Hand of God, death is coming. Here's how I'm supposed to look at death. And you're saying pursue life. Well, well, what does God tell me to pursue, whether I'm 17 or 70? Well, that's exactly what He's going to show us next. Next. Thank you. Rejoice in life satisfactions. Look at verse 7. Now watch how he begins this verse. Go then. <laughs> it's a command. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you loved all the days of your fleeting life, which is given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil, which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Solomon says the way that you live is you enjoy what God has given and you prove that you trust Him as you do. That's how you glorify God in the face of death. You pursue life. Verses 7 through 10 here is is a response to what Solomon has just said. Enjoy the life you have and the gifts in it. Don't worry or fret or squander the time you've been given. Go then, he says. Since this is true, go then and live and enjoy these specific things. This is similar to what Solomon, the wisdom Solomon's given before when he talked about overworking. You remember he talked about the workaholic? As one put it, the two-fisted worker. The miser and the workaholic toils long into the evening. He can't even sleep because his mind is running at night. And he's doing all that to get ahead in life. And then he has no opportunity to do anything with any of those things that he has. Solomon says, what kind of life is that? So you make money and you never get to use it for anything. For others or God, most importantly. He's applying the same wisdom to life and death here. If you fret over death and spend all your time trying to avoid it, what kind of life is that? If you walk around with bubble wrap, you'll waste it. And then you'll still die. That's what he's saying. 
First, God's in control of your death, not you. But second, you'll miss the blessings that that God's built in life. You're, You're in God's hand. You have no idea what's coming, but God does. You know death is coming, so let that motivate you to live and and you prove that you trust God by enjoying these gifts that, that he's, he's listed here. And then, and then he lists them beginning in, in verse 7. Notice in verse 7 that he says there are some specific things that God's approved. He says, go then and eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your, your works. God not only tells us what to avoid in life because it will harm us, but He tells us the good gifts to pursue. Maybe this will help. If someone was going to ask me, Pastor, outside of trusting Christ and, and proclaiming the gospel and the, the work in the church, what should, what should my, my main pursuits in life be? I would read this passage to them. Comfort companionship and cultivation, food, fellowship, and the fruits of your labor. Solomon says the good life that we're to pursue is enjoying life. That's what he says in verse 7, food and drink. Enjoying the gift of companionship. He mentions marriage. And then he says enjoying your work in verse 10. That's a God-centered enjoyment of life. This is what the Puritans rejoiced in. Not a death-consumed or a death-avoidance existence in life. He says, enjoy life, food and drink. Eat your bread. Notice the references to joy in verse 7. Eat your bread with happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. God's already approved your work. These are approved. And and if you're in Christ, you're approved there too. So rest. Enjoy His gifts. Verse 8, let your clothes be white and, and oil be on your head. Clean clothes, white clothes. They, they kept you cool in the, in the summertime. And oil was soothing and it deodorized. There's no Axe body spray in, in Solomon's day. So you put oil on yourself. It's all you had. It's a sign of, of being clean and refreshed. And look at verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which He has given you under the sun. Notice it's God who gave you those days. You enjoy marriage if you have a spouse, companionship with friends and family if you don't. It's God's gift. Enjoy them. Thomas says enjoy your work in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. It's a gift from God. Isn't that what Colossians says? Plastered all over our school and other places, as it should be. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of an inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Do with all your might. Solomon says a good day's work for the right reason is one of God's blessings. How do you feel whenever you get your house completely clean? I know it doesn't stay that way. But how do you feel when the last piece of laundry is put up? Or when the grass is mowed? Well, because of the curse, it's going to grow some more. But how do you feel? You feel good. You, you completed a major project. There's a sense of accomplishment. That's God's gift. And you actually show trust in God 
through thankful enjoyment of all of these things. And you show a lack of trust in God by work, 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 trying to get ahead, by, by neglecting the gifts and the blessings that He's given because I, I, I can't do those things because God needs me so much over here. It's just a lack of trust. My friend Joel James said, Solomon says, after a hard day's work, go home, take a shower, put on a clean shirt, eat your supper, and enjoy the woman that God's given you. That's the good life. That's what Solomon says. And you show your resting in God when the curse is all around you and death is coming for you by eating in the presence of those enemies. It's not the only place that the Bible says that, is there? Is it? You see, right here is another place where Solomon got his theology from his father, his father David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Sounds a lot like being in God's hand, doesn't it? David said in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And even though I live and walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Death and the curse is all around David, but he fears no evil. And not only that, he's sitting at the table of God's blessing in their presence. What's the table of God's blessing in your day? Exactly what Solomon says here. And we show trust in Him by paying little attention to the shadows. Oh, they may catch your attention every now and then. We show trust by paying little attention to the shadows, but instead, sitting down at the dinner table with your family, drinking your Dr. Pepper or Topo Chico, eating a steak with your friends and family. That's what Solomon's saying. That's how practical this is. For the Christian, death can only sit back and watch, unable to harm us, until the master of death now calls it to take us from our table to his table. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You glorify God in the face of coronavirus or whatever it is by following wise advice and then eating a meal with your family listening to a sermon, and then resting in God. (laughs) And when the quarantine is over, you go back to work and you enjoy it until the next manifestation of the curse comes. That's the good life, until you see Jesus face to face. And until then, you are indestructible (laughs) until Christ puts the key into the door of death and unlocks it for you. And when that moment comes, then you have one last opportunity to glorify God before you see Him face to face. That's biblical truth. And believers said, Amen. Amen. But if you think you control things, or you're worried about death, you won't even enjoy these blessings of life, and you actually waste your life. You'll be too busy trying to manipulate your circumstances or cheat death to no avail. And that's not a good life at all. It's a miserable one. 
it'll steal even the time that you have on earth. So what do you do? Rest. God is sovereign. You remember death is normal. You rejoice and pursue the gifts of this life, and you realize that you can trust Him for the unexpected. This is the wisest thing that we can do. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you've not left us without a clear word. And anxiety does creep into our hearts. That's why you teach us about it. If it wasn't possible for us, then there wouldn't be so many verses about fear not. But we do. We take our eyes off of the food and the blessings on the table and we start looking at the shadows. And so this morning, Lord, you've brought our eyes back to to not only what's on the table, but the one who set the table, you, the Lord Jesus, and your good grip. And so, Father, we recommit ourselves to rest in you. And we pray that you would help us to be wise and not foolish and our behaviors and what we do, but we pray that you would help us to use even these moments to point people to Jesus Christ because there are a lot of people that don't have the the Lord and they need a clear, steady word from believers. And this is the opportunity that we have. We love you. We thank you for it. And I pray, Father, that even this morning, if there's somebody here that has never rested in Christ's work alone for salvation. They're still trying to work their way or climb somehow into heaven, that today they would, they would lay down their arms and surrender. They'd repent of living for themselves and their own ways, and they would trust in Christ alone and His work on the cross. And I ask us all in Jesus' name. Amen.